You're listening to Speculation Podcast, where we tackle tough biblical topics from a biblical perspective. Hello and welcome to Speculation Podcast. This is Pastor Kelly coming to you. Excited to be back after a long extended break. Uh, We had quite a few things come up in the ministry here in Utah and uh, Aubin got married, so we want to congratulate her, but she's taken some time off to focus on married life. Um, But for these uh, next two episodes, we're going to be doing things a little bit different. I know the uh, prior episodes, we've done more of a dialogue between Aubin, myself, and a guest, or just Aubin and I, and uh, for these next two episodes, you're just going to be hearing me, unfortunately. So uh, I'm going to be flying solo uh, for these next two episodes, and uh, what I thought I would do is actually base these two episodes off of papers that I wrote during my uh, master's program uh, through Liberty University. And, uh, And so for these next two episodes, I'm going to be discussing first Uh, Jesus Christ in the comparison with Melchizedek, and then uh, a concept called Creatio Ex Nihilo, which focuses more on the creation event. So I really hope that these uh, these two episodes will bless you. They're going to be a little bit different than what we have done in the past, obviously. Um, They're going to be a little bit deeper, um, a little bit more scholarly, so I'm going to try to slow down a little bit. Hopefully you guys don't get too bored and fall asleep, Um, but uh, I hope that you are still able to, to glean some information from them. So let me just dive right in then, and we're going to be looking at today Jesus Christ in the comparison with Melchizedek. Um, It's a very important topic and one that is on the forefront of a lot of people's minds here in Utah in particular since the LDS Church or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints puts a major emphasis on the Melchizedek priesthood in particular. So what I thought I would do today is just talk a little bit about Melchizedek, uh, about who he is, what he did, um, and then make the comparison with Jesus Christ. So let me just dive right in. The book of Hebrews really draws a number of comparisons between Old Testament personas or concepts with that of the person and actions of Jesus Christ contained in the New Testament. One of these such comparisons is that of the priest of the Most High God named Melchizedek with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, in this podcast, I really want to show how the author of Hebrews is proving how Jesus Christ is superior to all Old Testament priesthoods and through his actions completed all Old Testament priesthood ordinances. This all hopefully also revealed that the authority and power of God comes through Jesus Christ as the holy priest and not by the offices of the various priesthoods, which is a focus upon the priest, not the priesthood. There are a number of passages that I will use contained in the Old and New Testaments that will hopefully explain the superiority of Christ. And for context, I will start by reviewing what the role of an Old Testament priest and high priest entailed focusing on the four characteristics of a high priest as presented in the biblical scriptures. Then I will transition into how Jesus Christ fulfills the office of high priest under those characteristics. Followed by that, I will explain the Melchizedek priesthood and why the author of Hebrews compares the high priesthood calling to that of Jesus Christ. One only has to properly explain the high priesthood and the comparison of Melchizedek with Jesus Christ to properly apply this information and to buy, and to also compare the biblical conclusion of the comparison of Christ and Melchizedek with the incorrect application of the Melchizedek priesthood by the LDS Church. So at the conclusion of this, I will work on building an understanding in greater detail that Jesus Christ 
in the power and authority of God is the exact fulfillment of the Old Testament priesthoods and ordinances, to which those things were not meant to be restored today, but were meant to be a foreshadowing of the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ, who was to come. Okay, so let me back up a little bit, and we'll look at priests and high priests in the Old Testament. So in order to properly understand really my point of this podcast episode, I will need to first build an understanding around what it means when the Bible speaks about priests and high priests. So in this section, I will present the qualifications that the Old Testament lays out for priests as well as high priests as presented again in the Old Testament scriptures, focusing on really four main characteristics of an Old Testament high priest. Now I want to share a quote with you from N.T. Wright. He defines Old Testament priests as members of the tribe of Levi who were Levites performing other liturgical duties, but not sacrificing. Priests lived among the people all around the country, that's Israel, having a local teaching role, looking at Leviticus 10.11, Malachi 2.7, and going to Jerusalem by rotation to perform temple liturgy. End quote. As I will explain later in this work, they were also responsible for the gathering of a tenth, or what we might call the tithe. Hebrews 7.9 makes reference to this. The commonality of priests that were not high priests were priests by descendants, but not by individual human appointment. They worked along the high priests, but had limited authority when it came to ordinances around entering the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or temple and around the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. So that's a little bit about the Levitical priesthood. In comparison, high priests were originally descendants of Aaron, who was the first high priest appointed by God. For that, you can see Exodus 28 through 29. However, the author of Hebrews in chapters 5, 1 through 4 doesn't speak on family ties or a set of hierarchical progressions as a characteristic, but more on the character of a high priest. The author lists four universal principles for the qualifications of an Old Testament high priest. The high priest must first originate from among the people, The high priest is to represent people in matters related to God, especially through offering gifts and sacrifices. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. In the high priest's weaknesses, or sorry, the high priest's weaknesses enable him to deal gently with people, verses 1 and 2, and he is required to offer sacrifices for himself as well as the people, verses 2 through 3, and God is the only one who confers the high priest by appointment, verses 1 through 4. Since this comparison of Christ and Melchizedek focuses on the office of high priest, one will need to focus on a more detailed description of the role of high priest as presented by the text. You know, the first characteristic is that they must be taken from, quote, among the people. George Guthrie argues that this is a correlation to Exodus 28.1, where it reads, To have Aaron your brother brought to you from among the Israelites. Guthrie writes, later that the Old Testament principle has to do with both the identity of the high priest and the people, which is the emphasis here, and the distinction made between the priests and the people were the priests who have a special role to fill, and therefore are called out to be distinct. Both the identity and the distinctiveness are important to the role. That's what Guthrie has to say about it. The second characteristic is how the high priests deal with, quote, matters related to God. This is seen in the tabernacle or temple ordinances of, quote, gifts and sacrifices. 
According to the Old Testament, the high priest shares in the generalist responsibilities performed by all the priests, including leading in worship by participation in various offerings. You can look at Exodus 29, 1-46 for more information. However, the high priest is unique in that he is the only one who leads the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. Quote, this is a, a quote from uh, George Guthrie again. He says, The high priest acts before God as a representative on behalf of the people making atonement for sins. So this obviously leads into the third characteristic focused on the Day of Atonement. The high priest must offer a special sacrifice for himself and his household before he can offer the goat sacrifices on behalf of the people. This shows how the high priest is, quote, subject to weakness. The Old Testament high priests suffer from sin, as we all are, and was surrounded by it. So they first had to sacrifice for their own sins, and then offer sacrifices for the sins of Israel. It was in this way that they understood the moral depravity of their nation, and understood the weakness of what the New Testament calls the flesh. Theologian F.F. F. Bruce wrote, it was this type of person, the person who, because of human moral weakness, has unintentionally wandered off the path of right living, that God designed the old covenant sin offerings. The defiant sinner, however, blasphemes God and thus finds no such provision. You can see Numbers 15, 29 through 30 there. The final characteristic laid out in Hebrews tells of how the high priest is appointed by God and not one that humanity can merely enlist. God himself confers the honor of appointment. Look at Exodus 28.1, Leviticus 8.1, Numbers 16.5. The position does not come from any human authority of discernment. It always comes from or for a divine appointment. God initiated the role of high priest and any, any high priest thereafter must be called by God to be considered the authentic and authoritative representative for the people of God. Okay, so now that we have an understanding of the Levitical priesthood, we have an understanding of the high priesthood, let's talk about Jesus Christ as high priest. Now, since Jesus Christ is called in Hebrews a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, as well as a messianic priest in Psalms, in Psalms 110 or Psalm 110.4, one needs to show why Christ fulfills all of these characteristics as, and is in fact a high priest as presented in Old Testament scripture. The author of Hebrews is arguing for the superiority of Christ's high priesthood on the basis of commonly understood truths from the Old Testament concerning the office of high priest. So this portion of the podcast, I really want to argue why Christ is a superior high priest over the Old Testament high priests. And I want to do that through a few different characteristics. The first characteristic was that a high priest must originate from among humanity. To properly answer this, I need to review Hebrews 10 or Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. Because in this passage, the author of Hebrews shows that the Son of God comes to humanity to partake in their contradiction or their condition, sorry, for a purpose. It is in this way that he is among humanity. In verses 17 through 18 in Hebrews chapter 2, it also notes that the Son had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement, a payment, for the sins of the people. 
Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The reader of Hebrews sees this reemerge in chapters 4, 14 through 15, when they show Christ's sympathy for those being tempted. He now expounds on this topic, beginning with the universality of the principle. Priests come from among humanity. It was the humanity of Jesus Christ that fulfills the requirement of his highly priestly status. It is in this sense that he understands the sufferings and burdens of humanity, but instead of succumbing to them, he overcomes them. In this way, Christ is superior to all other high priests before him. The second and third principle can be combined in that the high priest deals with the matters of God as they pertain to the sacrifice of sins. To review, when the author speaks on the matters of God, quote, he is referring to the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. It is in this sense that Christ not only qualifies as a high priest, but also surpasses all other high priests in superiority. Again, N.T. Wright uses the word bridge to describe this sense of superiority. He writes, Ordinary priests and high priests are themselves sinners, and must therefore offer sacrifices in relation to their own sins as well as those of the people. They also could not fully cleanse themselves perpetually of all sin. In this sense, they were important, imp impotent in the Old Testament priesthood. The author of Hebrews uses the word weakness and burdened to show how it was unfulfilled and needing to be redeemed. In comparison, Christ understood the human weakness and burden as a human high priest. However, unlike the high priest before him, his human life was not determined by sinful weakness, but by the practice of godly obedience. It is in this way that he was a bridge, a mediator to the atonement of sins. The high priests couldn't fulfill the final need for atonement on the annual day of atonement because of their sinful condition. But because of God's will, he used Christ's superiority to complete the need of atonement, making Christ a superior high priest. Hebrews 10.9 states, For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Christ is superior to the Old Testament high priest because he is not only the bridge and representative to a perfect atonement, or a perfect payment, you could say, but he is also the perfect sacrifice that was done once and for all time. The final comparison is that Jesus Christ was appointed as high priest not by mere human means, but by divine appointment. The reader of Hebrews sees this appointment through the glory that was given to Christ, which he never, origin which he never originated from himself. In each instance, the glory comes to Christ from another party or parties. He never garners glory for himself. In Hebrews 5, 5-6, the author focuses on the glory bestowed by God the Father on the occasion of the Son's appointment to high priesthood. Evidence of this honor is found in Psalm 110.4 and has direct ties to his nature as the Son of God with connection to the high priest status. Rather than Jesus' appointment to high priesthood being conferred simply by virtue of his relationship to God, the path to appointment was one of suffering, obedience, and endurance. Jesus Christ's appointment to high priest is superior again to that of the Old Testament because of his suffering, obedience, and endurance, and was not for his own glorification, but was done for the purpose of his coming from God through his divine appointment as the final high priest. 
Now there are a lot of information, a lot of information there, um, and I don't want you walking away saying, you know, that Jesus wasn't God. Um, if you look at any of our prior podcasts, especially the one of the first ones we did, I think it's season two with the Trinity. Um, I I would say stop now and go back and watch that or, or listen to that episode um, because we're talking a lot of in, in two different types of categories here. Right now we're talking about Jesus Christ as a man, but that doesn't surrender his godhood. Okay, so I just want to make that point clear. But if you need any clarification on that, go back and listen to my podcast on the Trinity. All right, so let me go back to uh, let's, let's return to Melchizedek for a moment or introduce Melchizedek. Now that one understands how Jesus Christ is the superior high priest, I need to make sure that there's a comparison between Melchizedek and Christ. So in this portion, I will focus on the person of Melchizedek as he is told to the reader in Scripture and what the author of Hebrews hopes to accomplish by referring to him in his exhortation, which is what Hebrews is. The first time I will... Well, the first time I will come will come across the person, or the first time a reader will come across the person of Melchizedek in the Old Testament is in Genesis fourteen eighteen through twenty, and once again in Psalms one ten four, when it is used in the reference of the Messiah of Israel. Melchizedek is the priestly king of Salem, and according to traditional sources, this city is linked to Jerusalem. One author in particular wrote, "As far as written evidence is known, the city of Salem has been called Jerusalem by the peoples in the area." both locals and in neighboring countries. In the context of Genesis, Abram is fresh off a victory over the Canaanite kings and is greeted by this mysterious person who he has blessed, and Abram even gives him a tenth of his spoils. The author of Hebrews in chapter 7 points out that the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, referring to the first part of the name, Melech, meaning king, and Sedek meaning righteousness. He also takes the literal name of Salom, and in and interprets it as peace. In this way, they are stating that the king of righteousness, who is king over peace, is blessing Abram, and Abram is in turn giving a tenth of his spoils to this person. These concepts of righteousness and peace are appropriate for one who prefigures the Messiah, who would make righteousness and peace possible for the people of God, originating from the descendants of Abram. There are three different items to note of significance about Melchizedek. The first is that Abram gives a tenth of his spoils to the priestly king. Again, he blesses Abram, and that there is no indication of his birth or death. However, the author's primary concern is towards how Abram gives a tenth of his spoils to Melchizedek. This is the author of Hebrews. He develops his claim for the enigmatic priest's eminence in one primary direction. Both the responsibility and honor held by Levi's descendants was the collection of the tithe, again, Numbers 18, 21-32. This set them apart as unique among the children of Israel. Since this is the primary direction of the Hebrews' author, it is the main topic that I will cover in this comparison. The author of Hebrews uses this tithe as the primary direction because they want to show how the Melchizedek priesthood is superior to that of the Levitical priesthood. To support this idea, I will merely need to explain Hebrews 7, 9-10. It reads, One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because Melchizedek met Abraham. Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. The question then is, why does this support a Melchizedek superiority? The tithe is now described as of the spoils instead of from all. This expression could denote the first fruits, or the best of the spoil reserved for God. 
Melchizedek's superiority is demonstrated both by the quality of the gift he has offered and the dignity of the one who offers. Abram, soon to be Abraham, is the patriarch of all of Israel, including the Levites. By him giving his best spoils to the priestly king, he is acknowledging Melchizedek's superiority, a reservation that was only to be done to those of greater status, and since Abraham's position is of a great honor as the father of Israel, it shows the high regard that all of Israel preceding must have towards one who is of the Melchizedek ranks. And this obviously now leads to a comparison with Jesus Christ. So in this point, I will build upon this comparison of the Melchizedek priestly king and that of Jesus Christ as presented in Hebrews 7 and 8. Now, if the giving of tithes is to show how Melchizedek is superior to Abraham and hitherto the Levitical priesthood, then what is one to gather from the author's comparison of him to Jesus Christ? It is in this comparison that I will show how Jesus Christ is superior to all other priesthoods. In Hebrews 7.11, it states that now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people reserved the law, what further need would have there been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? This is an important concept, and contained within this passage is how I can find, or one can find, Christ as superior to all other Old Testament priesthoods. Now, to reiterate Psalm 110.4, the Messiah is to be a priest in the pattern of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ isn't a replacement of Melchizedek. The narrative in Genesis 14, where Melchizedek first arrives, is not a Christophany, but is a foreshadowing of the true nature of the priesthood. In Christ, all things are fulfilled to completion. Jesus himself is of the Melchizedek pattern, and because of that, he is the only one who can qualify for the same description as Melchizedek, and therefore the loop is completed. In chapter 7, 11 through 28, one is given three reasons why Jesus Christ, who is of the Melchizedek pattern, is superior to all other priesthoods, high priests and Levitical priests included in that. The first is that he was appointed to the office of high priest by divine order, unlike the old covenant, which was a shadow of the new. Christ, as the high priest in the, this pattern, can now usher in a covenant of perpetuity and finality. The eternal nature of the priesthood, along with that of Jesus Christ, shows that those who believe in Christ can have hope forever through him, unlike the old priesthoods. Another way Christ is superior is through how his divinely appointed office differs from that of the old covenant, and how the new covenant brings with its perfection. The word that is translated as perfection is teleosis. Guthrie notes that it doesn't mean without flaws, but has to do with arriving at a desired end or reaching a goal. The power and authority that is coming from the pattern of the Melchizedek priesthood is that it is ushering a time of new covenant, which is the end goal due to its eternal nature. This covenant is one that is built on a relationship between God and his people. It is no longer about a set of ordinances or rules and regulations, but on faith in who Christ is and what he has accomplished as the one who believes in Christ's high priests. This is something that the Old Covenant represented, but the Levitical priesthood couldn't accomplish. Therefore, this shows how Christ's priesthood, in pattern with that of Melchizedek, is superior. As Psalms 110 presented, it aligns with the plan of God as presented in the Psalter. The writer knew that the Messiah was going to be a priest in the pattern of Melchizedek. 
it wasn't that the old covenant was flawed. It was just incomplete. It had to be fulfilled by Jesus Christ in his patterns as the Messiah and high priest in the order of Melchizedek. There is also superiority in this new covenant high priesthood of Jesus Christ because with it comes authority and power that no one else will wield. Later, in Hebrews 7, 20-22, the author uses the word engios to describe how Christ is the guarantor of this new covenant of relationship. The, hearers as the, new co- uh, the hearer, as new covenant people, have a covenant that is better because by virtue of God's oath, Jesus, the mediator of the covenant, Hebrews 8, 6, holds an unalterable position. Our hope, therefore, rests on the most secure of terms. This oath is unique because, like Christ, it is powered by the authority of God in perpetuity. There will never be a time when this covenant will lapse and when Christ won't be the guarantor. The power doesn't lie in the Melchizedek priesthood, but in the promise of God fulfilled in Christ, who is the better high priest in the same pattern of Melchizedek. Abraham's descendants honored Melchizedek in their day by their first fruits, and the old covenant that came about through those descendants foreshadowed a superior covenant that would point to a superior priest, Jesus Christ, and whom believers would eventually honor as their king and high priest. So let's look at how we can apply this, especially in in ministry today in Utah. So there really are a number of applications, but one I can take from in this comparison really has to do with how the uh, LDS Church has misinterpreted Christ and Melchizedek comparisons. In this section of the podcast, I will focus on how the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints misinterpret the meaning of Christ as the high priest in the Melchizedek priesthood. In particular, how this worldview focuses on the priesthood rather than on the priest, and how this is a clear misinterpretation of what the author of Hebrews is exhorting to within the the New Testament epistle of Hebrews, or exhortation of Hebrews. It is important to first give a brief understanding of what the LDS scriptures teach on the Melchizedek priesthood. The LDS church has two variations of priesthoods. The lesser is the Aaronic priesthood, and the greater of is the offices of the Melchizedek priesthood. In their Doctrine and Covenants, it states that through the priesthood, the power of godliness is manifested. The power is always in tandem with the priesthood office rather than the actual origin of the priesthood. It, the priesthood, holds the right of presidency and has the power and authority over all the offices of the church. You can find that in Doctrine and Covenants 107.8. In order for a man it is not available for women to reach the pinnacle of the LDS hierarchical system, they must reach the rank of Melchizedek priesthood. In fact, they have different offices per hierarchical rank. The offices are Apostle, Seventy, Patriarch, High Priest, and Elder. You can look at Doctrine and Covenants 107, 64-66. One of the main requirements of the Melchizedek priesthood holder is to make a new covenant. They promise to be faithful, magnify his calling, the office, give diligent heed of the words of eternal life, and live by every word that proceedeth forth from the word of God. Doctrine and Covenants 84, 33-44. Roger Terry is an LDS scholar who wrote about how the Melchizedek priesthood was a result of the charismatic leadership of Jesus Christ and then was taken from the earth after the first apostles only to be restored to another charismatic leader, Joseph Smith, who actually founded the LDS church in the 19th century. Terry writes, Smith established at least two distinct paths by which authority became routinized after his death. 
the hereditary patriarchal priesthood, and the institutional hierarchical Melchizedek priesthood. According to Terry, the Melchizedek priesthood was nothing more than a routinized authority of church leadership, but contained within the various offices of the priesthood the powers, quote, the powers of godliness. Okay, so how does a biblical Christian respond to this? So as I can tell from, as you can tell from the previous section, the Elders Church emphasizes the power and authority that they claim lies in one's ability to be hierarchical institutionalized into Melchizedek priesthood. The power lies in the office rather than the origins of power, God. This contradicts everything that the author of Hebrews is trying to exhort to his reader. The author of Hebrews wants their listener to or reader to focus on the priest, not the priesthood. Again, focus on the priest not the priesthood. The LDS Church puts the significance in the office or priesthood. This is no different than from that of the Levitical priesthood that was routinized through hereditary means. This is a uns unsatisfactory idea of what the Melchizedek priesthood is because Melchizedek priesthood is eternal. The greatest difference, however, comes to the reader in Hebrews 7.25. It reads, He, referring to Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This passage shows that the priesthood office is not the emphasis, but that it's the priest in Jesus Christ who has all the power and authority. The author of Hebrews is stating that the priest in the pattern of Melchizedek is the only one who has the power of godliness, not the priesthood. And in this power of godliness is to save those who believe in him, and it is he who makes intercession for them, not an earthly priest in a particular office. The power of Melchizedek is only realized at the power and authority given to Jesus Christ. The LDS Church tries to appoint men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later in the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You can see that Hebrews 7:28. The LDS Church's system of dual priesthoods is an attempt to revert back to the weakness and burdens of the Old Testament priesthoods and is direct contradiction of the hope and glory that the believers of Christ have in putting their faith in the Son of God who is superior to all other Old Testament priesthoods. So in conclusion, I just want to say Jesus Christ stands superior to all of the Old Testament priesthoods. He is not only a kingly priest in the pattern of Melchizedek, but he is the fulfillment of the foreshadowing of the righteous king of peace presented in Genesis. The priesthoods of the Old Covenant were a mere taste, a shadow of the Son of God, who would eternally be a priest forever. The scriptures teach this because he perfectly aligns with the characteristics and requirements of a high priest. Jesus is fully human, therefore fulfilling the requirement of coming from among people. He deals with the matters of God, which is salvation of mankind from their sins through the sacrifice on the cross. And he is the only one who can mediate of the, by the sacrifice but is, and is only the proper qualification for the sacrifice. Finally, he was not only appointed by man, but was appointed by God. He is superior to all other priests and priesthoods because in the same way that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham and therefore greater than the, than the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood, he is also greater by how he is the first fruit of all mankind. He fulfills the old covenant of laws and regulations and creates a new covenant that is built upon an intimate relationship between the human believer and God. 
this system is built on a foundation of grace and faith through Christ, which makes it superior to the old system of fallible men of weakness and of burden, living in the shadow of what was to come to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews makes many comparisons about Jesus is superior to the Old Testament personas and concepts, but the comparison of Christ to Melchizedek is the one that shows the true magnificence of the purpose, spoken word of God, and his perpetual rendering of a new perfect covenant. Okay, well, that wraps up this episode of Speculation. Again, I hope that this episode blessed you. I hope that you're able to to learn something new and new application into your life. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out either by Facebook on the Speculation page or you can find our website at www.speculationpodcast.com. We will be launching new episodes with no real schedule at this point. We're working on that. Uh, Bear with us as we continue to release episodes while we can. Um, And uh, I will be praying for you listeners. And I hope that, again, that this blesses you. And stay tuned for more content.